Hi, folks. It's Rabbi Sharon Brouse here. You are listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our guest speakers, our teachers, anything we think worth listening to that we can capture, you can hear right here. Thank you so much for being with us. In our community, we have learned many times over that if you're awake in the world, you will be called again and again to hold grief and joy with one heart. And this year has shown that to us in very profound ways. And this week has shown that to us once again. And so um, while many of you have come here to celebrate this morning, I also know that we have very heavy hearts as, as Sammy and Rabbi Tzadok indicated earlier. And I do wanna take a few moments this morning to address the particular heartache that I and many of us are feeling right now with the escalation in violence in Israel and Palestine this morning. And I can promise you that even as we deal with this very hard and painful space that we find ourselves in right now, there will also be room for incredible joy today. I promised Maya and I meant it. And, um, and we hold both, that's what we do. This is, um, the glass breaking beneath the chuppah. And the broader context is the chuppah itself. It is a time of incredible blessing where we're moving from darkness into light and finding our way back to each other and finding our way to lift up our voices in gratitude. So there's a story that I think about often that comes from George Orwell. Some of you may have heard me tell this story before. It's a story about a time when he was enlisted as a soldier in the Spanish Civil War in the 30s. His commander positioned him on a certain strategic perch and ordered him to shoot at enemy troops, anyone that came within sight. And so he crouched and he waited until he finally saw an enemy soldier jump out of the trenches and run before him in full view. He was about to shoot when he noticed a small detail, which is that this man was holding up his pants with both hands as he ran. And suddenly he couldn't shoot at him. He later explained, I came here to shoot at fascists, but a man who's holding up his trousers is not a fascist. He's a visibly fellow creature, not at all unlike me. And you just don't feel like shooting at a fellow creature. A broken belt. I can't stop thinking this week about the broken belt because what seems really clear to me at the end of a week of incredible anguish and heartache is that we are right now witnessing in real time what happens when an entire society loses the ability to see one another's broken belts, to see one another's humanity, which means that while other people will debate best military and political strategy, I want to focus for at least a few moments this morning on what it means when we collectively lose the ability to see one another altogether. I want to say that this did not happen last week when Hamas rockets started to fall on central Israel. It didn't start when Israeli airstrikes began to hit Gaza. It didn't happen this past month when Israeli police, for reasons I think we still don't understand, decided to close Damascus Gate during Ramadan. It did not start with the videos 
that certain Palestinians placed up on TikTok of them assaulting Jews began to go viral. And it didn't even start when the protests erupted in advance of a court ruling about evictions of Palestinians in Sheikh Jarrah, this most contested area. It didn't even start when Jewish extremists, or dare we say Jewish supremacists, marched through the streets shouting Mavet la Aravim, death to Arabs. You don't lose the humanity in another person in a month or even in a year. Dehumanization grows in a slow boil and it's cultivated over time. And I know what you're gonna to say to me, and you are right. Hamas does not distinguish between Lahava protesters coursing through the streets and Israeli mango farmers or Shoah refugees or the people working in high tech in Tel Aviv or those who moved to Israel to try and live a rich and meaningful Jewish life or those who dedicate every single day of their lives to building a more just and open society. When you shoot rockets indiscriminately at civilian populations, that is the very essence of dehumanization. And I know that it's not only those in Israel who feel this, many of you right here in the United States with me have felt this personally, whether we're in LA or, or Tel Aviv or Sydney, Australia, yeah, we are often personally held responsible for every policy of Israel's right-wing ultranationalist government unless we lead first with a firm disavowal of Israel altogether. We're not asked, we're told that we're terrorists and colonizers and apologists for an apartheid regime. Some of you have been told that even this week. And as painful and as personal as that often is, I am even more brokenhearted when I hear our own politicians and rabbis and communal leaders do the very same toward the Palestinian people. Like those who wrote to me this week to warn me of the danger of my liberal views. They said, when will you understand the Palestinians want to kill us all? And I was left to wonder which Palestinians exactly are you talking about? The friend that just wrote me moments earlier to reach out and check in on my brother in Renana to see if he and his kids are safe. The danger here is not only rhetoric. The danger is rhetoric that's backed by state policy. And we have to talk about dehumanization that comes with referring constantly to the other as a demographic threat and not infrequently to the other as an existential threat. This is the embrace in Israeli society of Kahanist ideology, which for years was marginal and now over the past two years has become mainstream in Israel, much the same way that violent extremist ideologies have moved to the mainstream here in the United States. This is the passage of laws in Israel that show a total disregard for the suffering of Palestinians, the human suffering behind the strategic objective. This is the overt and the tacit acceptance of a completely untenable status quo in Gaza, where nearly 2 million human beings are packed into living conditions that none of us, not one of us would abide if it were our family, with power only eight hours a day and running water every other day. And that's before this most recent escalation. And I know that it's hard to talk about all of this where rockets are coming down on Tel Aviv. And I learned this morning 
that a man was killed in Tel Aviv from one of those rockets. But I also know that over the past several years in the United States, we have reaffirmed again and again that there comes a time when the only way forward is through the truth. When we're called to speak not only about where it hurts, but also about the underlying conditions that rendered the body susceptible to illness in the first place. Ignoring root causes, we've said again and again, leaves us vulnerable to endless recurrences of sickness and suffering. So when is the right time? When is the right time for us to talk about these root causes? My brother came in last Shabbos. Some of you saw him here with us. We hadn't seen him in a, in a year and a half, and he flew back to Israel on Monday, just hours before Ben Gurion Airport was closed because of those rockets that are being aimed at central Israel. He actually noticed the plane rerouting to come in from the north, and he only learned why when they touched down. He and his wife and their four children have spent several nights in their little bomb shelter this week, and they know that they're the lucky ones because they have a bomb shelter and they have 90 seconds to get into it, whereas those who live in Steyrot and closer to the border have only 10 seconds, which means essentially that they cannot leave. And I can't help but think about those who live in Gaza who have no bomb shelter to go to at all. I have not spent the last week in a bomb shelter like they have and millions of Israelis have. I have been here, like many of you, watching this disaster on the screen, watching it unfold on streets and in shooks and across neighborhoods that I know and that I love, and praying to God that this will end before more people die. Like many of you, I've been holding my breath with every red alert that comes in on my phone, praying for my beloved family, literal family and figurative family. So my interest first and foremost right now is for the violence to stop immediately for the rockets and the beatings and the missiles and the fires, so that no more people, Israeli or Palestinian, need to bury their loved ones this coming week. No more lives wasted in another war that no one will win. But as fervent as my prayer is that this fighting subsides quickly, we have to consider what it means to live in a society in which day after day, year after year, dehumanization has become more the norm than the exception, in which people are trained almost from birth to hold our own narratives as sacrosanct and singular, such that we literally cannot hear each other's stories or see each other's humanity. It took me a long time to learn how to hold the stories that Palestinians are trying desperately to tell us. I wanted to jump in. I wanted to challenge and to counterpoint every single point I heard. I had to learn how to listen. I shared with some of you years ago that when I first moved out here to LA, I went to hear a Palestinian professor speak in a synagogue in Santa Monica. And he stood before a crowd of 200 Jews and he said to us, you are not going to like what I have to say to you right now. Some of it's gonna make you sad, and some of it will make you angry, some of it will make your blood boil, but you have to listen to me. Because today I'm gonna to tell you what happened in 1948 from the perspective of my people. Whether you like it or not, he said, I'm asking you to listen to me because this is our history, this is our story. And if we're ever going to have peace, we have to hear each other's stories. 
This was an absolute revelation for me. We don't need to cede to each other's claims of the past, but we have to hear them. Yom Ma'ut, Israel's Independence Day is a day that I celebrate with immense gratitude. It was a day that marked the transformation of our people from victims of history to agents of history, a day that honored the struggle and the suffering of my Jewish family, the generations of trauma and displacement, of genocide and expulsion as we transitioned into a people with a dream made manifest. I still to this day hold that day as a miracle. Today, May 15th is Nakba day. This is the day that falls every year on that first Yom Ha'atzma'ut back in 1948. Palestinians mark this day, not liberation and redemption, but catastrophe. They mark on this day the displacement of 750,000 Palestinians from their home as they were expelled or fled from their towns and villages when the state of Israel was born. And Nakba is not a historical commemoration for many Palestinians. It's very much a part of their present as they still experience today the reverberations from an expulsion that they describe as present and continuous. Many of those people who fled became refugees and they carry the keys to their grandparents' homes in places like West Jerusalem and Haifa, powerful symbols of their loss and a daily reminder of their displacement. I know talking about Nakba Day might make some of us uncomfortable because this day has been turned by some Palestinian activists into a day of rage and resistance against Israeli occupation, leading sometimes over the years to violent clashes with Israeli police and soldiers. But the fact is that today, right here, right now, as uncomfortable as it might make us, I can talk about Nakba Day. This is not a sermon that I could give if we were in Jerusalem on this Shabbat. Because the Nakba law punishes any municipality that commemorates the events of 1948 as the Nakba. Those who do not comply are liable to lose state funding. Think of what that means. This is not my narrative, but this is a real live narrative that our neighbors, our cousins hold as their truth. And we do not allow that story to be told. My friends on the ground are telling me, and perhaps you've heard this too, that this round of violence is different from previous escalations. The Hamas rockets, the Israeli airstrikes, as horrible as they are, we know the script. It keeps happening every few years but it's the violence in the streets of Israel's mixed cities of, of Lod and Akko and Batyam, the violence between Jewish Israelis and Palestinian citizens of Israel, neighbors. That's the most painful and surprising in this round. One resident of Lod where members of our own team here at Ikar are from and still have family in. One of those, one of those residents of Lod said that the men in the street who surrounded his apartment chanting and trying to burn his house down as he huddled close with his children and tried to keep them calm. He knew those men from the neighborhood. They see each other in the market. They knew each other's names, but they have forgotten each other's humanity. We've been taught to, we've been taught that to see each other to allow multiple narratives to hold truth would make us weak 
It would be a vulnerability because it would mean ceding the moral high ground. But I have to say that a society collapses when we're unable to make room for each other. We built an entire rabbinic literature around honoring and, pre and, and preserving dissenting views. And yet we hold the narrative that our neighbors, our cousins, pose a moral, a mortal threat to our family as if ignoring that narrative for 50, 60, 70 years will make it go away. Our, our hearts are so heavy right now. We've suffered so many losses and we're holding so much fear and anguish for our family and for our loved ones. But this week for all of the anguish and all of the heartache, I hope we're also reminded of the urgency of liberating ourselves from the rigid binaries of thinking around Israel and Palestine that we recognize in others, but we so rarely recognize in ourselves. We have to see the humanity in each other or else we resign ourselves to today's violence playing out again and again and again in the coming years. In a moment, we're gonna read from the beginning of, part of the book of Bamidbar, Parsha Bamidbar. Listen to what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has to say about the census that we're taught to take in Parsha Bamidbar. Normally he says a census is dehumanizing. It's taken as a measure of a nation's strength, which exists in numbers. The more numerous a nation, the more powerful it is. But that would be to reduce the mass of humankind to a mere statistic. I am here, but if I were not, someone else could substitute for me, he says. Judaism is a sustained protest against that idea. Thus, the famous statement in the Mishnah, which we repeat again and again here, that a single life is like an entire universe. Sachs goes on to say that the Torah uses a strange locution when speaking about the census of the Israelites. Se'u et rosh, literally lift up the head. The purpose of a biblical census is not to quantify, he says, but to affirm the worth of each individual in the totality of Torah. We are no longer a person, but an image of God. Today on this Shabbat of fear and vulnerability, I pray for our people. I pray for our saftas and our dodas, for our brothers and for their children. I pray for every Jew who made Aliyah, whether as a refugee or a dreamer or both. And I pray for their neighbors, for our cousins, for the Palestinian people who have yet to have their own dreams realized in the form of a state that will honor their dignity and lift up their humanity as our self-determination has for us. I wanna close with the words from Amos Oz who pleaded with us not to give up in the search for one another's humanity. He wrote years ago, I am not preaching complete moral relativism, certainly not. I am trying to enhance our ability to imagine each other on every level. On the most everyday level, just to imagine each other. Imagine each other when we fight. Imagine each other when we complain. Imagine each other precisely at the moment that we are 100% right. Even when you're 100% right and the other is 100% wrong, it's still useful to imagine each other. So I say to you on this Shabbat, even when we're wrong, we're still human. And even when you're wrong, you're still human. I am asking us to move out of our camps, to stop shouting and waving banners long enough to stand on the side of humanity right now, to amplify the voices of Israelis and Palestinians who are begging us to see them and to see each other 
as fellow human beings trying with all our might to hold up our trousers when the belt has been broken. And in that spirit, I ask if you will join me in reciting a prayer that was written by my dear friend, Rabbi Tamar Elad Applebaum, with her dear friend, a Muslim religious leader who lives with her in Jerusalem, with whom she is fighting to carve out a better path for her children, for my nieces and nephews, for all of us, and for all who have a heart that breaks whenever there is a life lost in that region. I'll ask you if you can to please stand and we'll say this prayer together. Melech hafetz b'chayim, God of life, you who heal the brokenhearted, binding up our wounds, please hear this prayer of the mothers. You did not create us to kill each other, nor to live in fear or rage or hatred in your world. You created us so that we allow each other to sustain your name in this world. Your name is life. Your name is peace. For these I weep. My eye sheds water for our children crying in the night. For parents holding their infants, despair and darkness in their hearts. For a gate that is closing. Who will rise to open it before the day is gone? With my tears and with my constant prayers, with the tears of all the people deeply pained at these harsh times, I raise my hands to you in supplication. Please, God, have mercy on us. Hear our voice that we not despair, that we will witness life with each other, that we have mercy one for another, that we share sorrow one with the other, that we hope together for another. Inscribe our lives in the book of life. For your sake, God of life, let us choose life. For you are peace, your world, your world is peace. And all that is yours is peace. May this be your will. And let us say, Amen. Amen. Hey everybody, Randy Sklar here. I'm an eCar member. And Jason Sklar here. I'm an eCar fan. Yeah, and we uh, love eCar so much. We love the message that eCar uh, delivers in their many podcasts. And we feel like most people feel there aren't a lot of podcasts in this world. I think there are only two or three. There's only a couple. So what we'd like you to do is donate to eCar. Get ecar-la.org uh, so that they can do more podcasts and more cool things because Lord knows the world needs more podcasts. Yep.